Hello, welcome to Research Matters, where we bring high quality research design to life in the business and management fields with Russ Glennon, Steve Wynn and Stephen Buzzduggan. Hello, welcome to week four of Research Matters. Uh, I'm Russ Glennon and I've got my co-host with me here, Steve, and we're going to pick up the threads that uh, we gently started to weave in the last episode and move on from um, ontology to epistemology. And um, I think in the materials that I put up for this course, the principles of research design for the students, uh, I sort of slightly cheekily um, titled this week, wait, I've only just got to uh, grips with ontology and now we're doing epistemology, what? Um, and I think that's kind of very much on the background of I think lots of people's feelings about this um, and about it being, well, hang on, are these two separate concepts? Are they different? How are they different? And perhaps a feeling I think, and, and I'm ho hopefully we'll pick up on this in, in, in a little while, but within our fields, and, and we're really talking about business management and law, um, a sense of perhaps in some of the books um, a more artificial distinction being drawn sometimes than genuinely feels like the case between the two. Or whilst there are differences, actually, they, they, the boundaries start to blur somewhat. Would, would that be a fair comment, Steve? I, I think so, Russ. I think um, there is always a desire to analyse. So what we're really looking at, I suppose, um, from a wider perspective is methodology, isn't it? That understanding our conceptual position towards the nature of knowledge and how that can be acquired and how it can be evaluated. And I think in wanting to do that, and the books wanting to build up a structured approach to methodology, they do slightly artificially pull pull that part into ontology and epistemology, which I do think are distinct as concepts, but I think they very much combine in practice in terms of the decisions you make about epistemology really are, are very much linked and reflected in your, your ontology. It's, and I think that's why consistency between the two is so much a valued mm. property, isn't it? Mm. Because we want to see that. I also think um, in many ways, uh, people have a more intuitive grasp of what we mean by epistemology and why it's important. And I think ontology, as we, as we probably demonstrated with our convoluted uh, sort of uh, thought processes last week, I think becomes so, yeah. more, more difficult, doesn't it? It seems so, so abstract. And I think it's when we talk today about epistemology, we'll see that its relevance is actually very important. So if we, there's two things I'll maybe try and pull together and I'll get you to perhaps put them together and then unpick them. I'm not quite sure how that's going to work. My metaphors are somewhat clumsy this morning, I feel. Um, so we talked about ontology and epistemology being separate concepts, but related. Let's let's say flip sides of the same coin, maybe, in that they, they are all to do with how we see the world and the knowledge that the world contains or may contain and how we want to access that knowledge and how we do it. We've also, though, I think had quite a strong emphasis um, through these discussions on seeing it less about you adopting personal, you know, view for life position, as it were, and more about it being a kind of unifying theme that you put into your research in terms of how you decide to go from kind of conceptualization through to operationalization, I guess. Um, what? And you've, you've just talked a little bit there about, you know, our, our desire to analyze things and to kind of provide these positions, we get them. Just for the sort of the 
basics of it, maybe, Steve. Just go through a little bit how you see them as being distinct and where, if there are boundaries that are kind of fuzzy, where roughly do we start to see the boundaries being drawn? Okay, so to make the distinction, I'll be textbook Steve for a moment. So textbook Steve says (laughs) ontology is, well, often actually textbook Steve would say, and I have an issue with textbook Steve on this, it would say it's about the nature of reality. And I think, or, or possibly even truth, I think it's probably better to think of ontology about an understanding of what you take to exist. What are the constituents okay. of the business and management universe or world which you are going to um, examine? Now, the important implication there is, that, therefore, there are certain things which you are perhaps suggesting you might be able to know. So if, if you're looking at social reality and you believe that um, the world is socially constructed through interactions between individuals and organizations, and maybe there's a role for institutions as well, that has uh, implications for what you think you may be able to know. So textbook Steve continues. Epistemology (laughs) is often referred to sort of how we believe we can come to know, discover and validate knowledge. Now, so that's a distinct idea that, that, that that idea of the activity of coming to knowledge to know something and, and to also be sure that that knowledge is robust and in some way shareable with a wider community. I've used the word shareable there to avoid using things like verifiable or, or to validate, which we'll maybe touch on later on. Sure. Um, so there you go. Your textbook Steve makes a distinction. But of course, I think anyone listening would probably be thinking, in a sense, there's a very, very close relationship because what we think, how we come to know really just depend on what we think we can come to know as well um, and the interaction between the two. Okay. So if... So if, if we think the world is fluid, uh, relativistic, and that the concepts and ideas that are out there and, and purported to be describing the world are actually constructions, then that how we come to know that is very much linked into the fact that that's what we believe that there is. So we need to adopt the appropriate methods towards collecting data or to analyzing data or to conceptualizing our findings. So I think that's where the link really is that, and the two sides of the coin in that sense, in that really you're dealing with one problem. What can we know? What can we make a, or put it another way, what can we make a knowledge claim about? And to answer that, we do need to understand what is it we're going to make knowledge claims about? What is the phenomenon? What, where, does it, where does it sit ontologically? But also how can we come to know that? that process or that entity or that construction. Mm. Does, that, does textbook Steve make sense there, Russ? I, I like textbook Steve. Um, <laughs> he, he's, he's clear. Um, sometimes the danger of, of, let's say, textbook Russ, so I won't, I won't criticise textbook yes. Steve, textbook Russ, Russ is a sort of dusty individual who rarely comes out, I'm afraid. Um, it, it, sometimes the things that textbook people can say uh, is a bit like me saying that futsal is uh, Paraguay's number one sport. It, it's accurate and a piece of knowledge, but it's not in any way informative or helpful. Um, so that's the danger of a textbook, isn't it, as you said? And actually, lots of the difficulties I think people have is is in exactly that. There is a textbook definition. And I think what you've given is, is, is a, a much more accessible version of that, I think. I'm just, and again, I'm thinking out loud here now, really. I wonder how much of this confusion is rooted in the fact that we... We are um, a social science 
um, well, certainly we said we consider business management law to be a social science. It seems to be the, the grouping with, with which it kind of best aligns. Um, it, it's a social science, but one that as a magpie field draws on lots of other things, which include stuff from the very kind of positivist and stuff that maybe, you know, from psychology, which is very clear about how we can measure emotional affect or things like that in, in a way that other people at the other end of this kind of spectrum perhaps would, would struggle a little more with. So it covers that and it covers everything through to, you know, um, people who are, you know, wanting to go and do participant observational lessons or something, you know, very much in that kind of richer kind of domain. And so whilst the discipline covers that, we then end up in this conversation as if when we talk about, let's say, the ends of the spectrum, and this is problematic in and of itself because it's a very sort of dichotomizing principle to talk about two ends of a spectrum. But we then start to compare, you know, um, let's say the effectiveness of a particular drug on a, on a bacterium that you can you can literally observe and is there and they're either dead or they're alive and the antibiotic obviously kills them or doesn't or kills half of them or whatever versus that kind of more rich social um, kind of interaction. And actually, whilst business sort of covers some of that, its reach is really broad. I think. And so it becomes quite difficult to sort of perceive those because if you're at the very arts and humanities end of something, you are probably going to be taking a theoretical position much more than you're going to be taking a methodological position, or your methodological position will be driven by a theoretical position. They're not the same. They clearly have some relationship. If you're at the very engineering end, well, you're measuring stress loads on, you know, bridge spans or whatever. Um, there's no need for much of a discussion, I think, for those points as much. But we in the middle, we, you know, we're that big bit in the middle of the venture diagram i suppose if we were to take the two positions so there does seem to be this this sort of swirling morass of, <laughs> of information in there that, that we expect the students to kind of be able to navigate but i think what you what you put i think in in your bit which i like was is this sense of it's about how we make the decisions about how we want to deliver a piece of research and that does require this understanding of what types of knowledge I think exist and can be accessed. So, you know, do I want to listen to people's stories? Do I want to look at firm performance, you know, on the stock market, which are very different sort of approaches, but that there is that real spread across that. That's a bit of a ramble, I think, from me, but what what um, what would be your, what would be textbook Steve or indeed normal Steve's <laughs> view of that? Normal Steve? All right. <laughs> to dig deep for that one then. Um, That's a challenge. But, uh, <laughs> I think, I think the point you're making is very much um, we're in that position where people expect so much from us, I think, in, in, in sort of the business management law field and applied mm. science, isn't it? Mm. We're, we're expected to both understand change, revolutionize, radicalize all, all at the same time. Uh, and I do think you picked up something very important there, these competing expectations and, and knowledge claims. So on the one hand, we want to, using your magpie analogy, we want to, we want to collect items of data don't we we want to we want to yeah. understand the patterns and the regularities and measure gdp and measure relationships between um, uh, income levels and education outcomes so we, we want to understand all of those regularities uh, particularly at the aggregate level and understand which factors seem to be bringing about which particular outcomes 
But on the other hand, as you say, we, we also want to understand the lived experience, the subjective uh, position that someone adopts and how that is experienced mm. and, and the role. And also, and I think very interestingly that you picked up there, the role of theory is incredibly important as well. So if you look back at sort of the emergent back in the sort of particularly the 60s and 70s feminist agenda and saying, well, there's another way to interpret the world. Mm. There's another way to think about what's happening here. Um, and then theory, you know, and, and obviously there were many uh, new theories, theorizations emerging all the time. So I think that melting pot, isn't it really, of different expectations, different approaches, I think you've quite rightly, you, know, you you've really acutely note, noted that, means that we are in a muddle almost, aren't we? Yeah. Because we're not quite sure... Are, are we meant to be measuring? We think there's something in val- value in that. And then the, the, the sort of people on that more positivistic, post-positivistic side of the discipline are very concerned about measurement, about generalization, about validity of knowledge. Can we be sure that we're measuring what we think we're measuring? And is it replica? Can, we, can it be replicated? But on the other hand, we also don't want to do an injustice to the lived experience, the feeling, the thoughts of individuals involved. Um, we don't want to um, in any way marginalise groups that ought not to be marginalised and disempowered and so on. So I think it's interesting we're talking about this in the context of epistemology, isn't it? Mm. The, the, the discussion has drifted this way because it's very much a, an issue of politics within research, I think, as, as much as anything else. So in the textbook, Steve, version, it's presented as a series of concepts that we choose from, a menu. But I think... And I think this has come up in other conversations. I think our ultimate choice is driven by a much more complex set of drivers uh, that involve philosophical aspects, yes, but I think just as much sort of almost about our commitment to certain types of outcomes. Um, I don't know if that does, does that ring true with your own experience, Russ? Or? It does. It does. And, you know, as as per usual, we're, we're you know, we're recording this, um, what feels like horrendously early on a Monday morning for the pair of us. <laughs> um, you know, thoughts are swirling around. I'm not sure they're fully formed yet. I think I think one one word that you said there that carries a deeper meaning um, as well was this sense of um, not wanting to see an injustice to certain things. I actually think justice and we tie that to the sort of let's say small p political you know not not party political the small p political aspects of kind of research is really important and i think that for um you know uh, applied theoretical fields in the social science like business management and law it's 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 a little bit for me like um did you ever watch you know location 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 and those sort of you know um property hunting programs and um the people on there largely seem to be picked for their inability to make compromises you know <laughs> they want well we want this thing in it, this house it needs to be like a lovely cottage and it needs to be completely secluded from everywhere and i don't want to hear any traffic noise but it needs to have massive rooms and loads of space and this really lovely cottagey feel but i want high ceilings and i want to be able to get into london in 38 minutes and you like and i want all of that for fifteen thousand pounds you know they've got this huge array of things and actually the difficulty with a menu is you can only have certain bits of it you know and actually um the menu choice is, is is quite it's an interesting way to think of it really i think actually we, and it's perhaps a metaphor that gets uh 
underexplored, shall we say, a little bit. Because if you think about um, a traditional kind of restaurant menu, we split things into categories and we expect them to go together to make a whole. Um, so you would have a starter, you would have a main course, you would have a pudding, you might have sides or whatever and, you know, drinks to go with it. They What, you, what people do, what I do, I'll speak for what I do, what I do is I have a think about, well, if I'm having a very, you know, um, a light main, I might have a richer starter or a pudding or, you know, there'd be a sense of a complementarity to that kind of process. And I think the sort of the the broader that our menu gets, the more difficult it makes to kind of make more consistent and coherent choices. And I guess I suppose, as we said, the the um the role of theory coming in and providing a theoretical viewpoint. And so we're into kind of operating in three dimensions now rather than a simple kind of two by two axis. I wonder how much um of this complexity, this richness, which I have to say is one of the things I think I like about my field or our field, sorry, um, is it sort of comes from certainly uh, business and management. I'm, I'm less familiar with the background of law, but, you know, jurisprudence has been around for a very long time. But business and management is actually relatively new as a kind of field. And we're really sort of going back to like the early 1900s. And the roots of that were very much firmly anchored in um industrialization as a process in a very positivist you know we're thinking taylor's scientific management time and motion we're thinking fordism you know the move away from craft and to mass producing that sort of thing um and there's a fair chunk of early business school stuff that is very much associated around dealing with labor relations and, and things like that but actually this this the rise of business and management as concepts and professions is is relatively recent. And so it, it's it's very much embedded in that positivist. And I wonder how much like theory is actually, you know, um, sort of post-structuralist theory or Marxist theory, feminist theory has been one of the things that's kind of forced apart a little bit the 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 walls of the paradigm that or paradigms that we sit in. What what do you think? Yeah, I do think as a historical account, there's a lot of value in, in, in looking at the development in those terms, particularly because I think what you're right to highlight is that theory has, in a sense, problematized the traditional paradigm, hasn't it? Mm. Theory is, and, and particularly in the context of this discussion, this discussion, theory has pointed out what you believe uh, there is to know it is not the complete story. There are other aspects to, of the way that social reality operates that need to be known and discussed, highlighted, foregrounded. And that then, obviously, allows us to see that our tools, our positivistic tools, or post-positivistic tools, our tools of measurement, of hypothesis uh, generation, of sort of quite aggregated mm. examination of phenomena, are, are insufficient for those other issues. Because they're often, and this could, well, ontology seeps back in, um, we're often looking at or making ontological assumptions about entities which aren't particularly visible aren't particularly measurable in the normal sense or the way they can be measured will depend on different types of data yeah whether it be self-report observation or potentially more of a critical realist stance or a marxist stance things that are happening that explain what's happening but aren't immediately accessible and that need to be theorized and then inferred from uh, the the sets of uh, activities and processes that you can see so again it just it highlights that I think on a historical level, you're absolutely right that the discipline has had to engage with new theories, new ways of looking, which is question of what, do, what can we know? What do we need to know to understand 
the phenomenon that we're now measuring. So it's a case of yes, we've measured it, but but why? Why why is why is that happening? What what's the set of theoretical mm. explanations? But also, I think those theoretical prods in different directions, if you put it that way, have opened up the question of ontology as well. well what does exist? What 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 is important in explaining the way the world is? Yeah, and I guess um, within business management, um, particularly as a field, we often end up with a very clear um, a very clear structure as our unit of analysis. So the organisation, the institution, in a way that I'm not entirely sure happens necessarily. In, in some of those other fields, it's, it's you've got this kind of real push then, I think, towards, yes, are you looking at, you know, broader um, organisational factors? Are you looking at fuzzier institutional factors? Or are you thinking about individual factors or some other aggregation, whether that's a profession or in discipline or those sorts of things? So there is a real, um, I guess, series of tensions between these things. And I think for me, the the challenge around having a theoretical position um an explicit theoretical position sorry i suppose i suppose you know post-structuralist disables everything's a theoretical position if you if you kind of explore it but having an explicit one is is it's a bit like having um a complex statistical method it's not enough on its own you've got to be able to relate it to some broader questions about what is it you think is happening and why is it you think it's happening and and how can we gather the information um I do think one of the things that is clearly still very recognisable when you read business management research is still this dominance of very positivist, post-positivist kind of research. Um, I Early in my PhD, I did a small piece of kind of paid research work for my supervisor. Um, and I did a content analysis, which is a form of, of counting and categorising stuff in, in, in into various ways. And I did it looking at uh, three academic journals. So it was Productions and Operations Management, um, the International Journal of Operations Management, and the Journal of Operations Management. So very much around operations management was their field. And so th these are the three top-rated journals. And JOM and IJOPM, as we tend to call them, were sort of a little bit mixed. My supervisor wanted to know what sorts of papers are being published, what sort of detail, and are they literature reviews, are they conceptual papers, how empirical stuff, and we should be looking for some other things as well. The, the one that really struck me was, was, um, was POM, Production and Operations Management. And it was absolutely uh, almost 100% full of mathematical pieces essentially you know all of the papers started with imagine a fresh fruit supplier with products range of q and a turnover of y and you know blah 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 and then there were pages of, of you know lemmas math mathematical formulae and then at the end it would say right this is the optimum stock rotation you know algorithm for a fresh mango and, and at no point did any of those papers say, and so we went to the man from Del Monte and we said, can we have a look at your mangoes, please? And can we maybe work with you to improve the way that you store and turn your mangoes? And, and there's still a ton of that in, in business and management particularly. But I am feeling, and this is perhaps where my optimism gets in the way of my realism, I am feeling a bit of a shift away from some of that research and uh, uh, the dominance of that research, sorry, and towards an understanding that the sources of knowledge that we can access that reflect more ethereal, intangible sort of things where we can make theoretical 
statements about stuff is is starting to kind of bubble up a little bit more and I, I do know certainly within my field there's a couple of journals that have now said that they won't publish single respondent in organizational surveys so that thing where you send a survey to like all the chief execs of a load of companies you know uh, that in in an acceptance that one person even the chief exec or perhaps even especially the chief exec cannot possibly hope to speak for the richness and complexity that is contained within the boundaries of an organization so we've got these kind of again tensioning kind of forces between organizations or institutions as units of assessment we've got this rise through theoretical perspectives of of uh, an increased valuing maybe of those other forms of knowledge that we start to see and then a sort of a recognition of some of the limitations of the positivist and we're not here to put the boot into you know post positivist or quantitative research or any any type you know i think as long as it's well conceived and well delivered all research is good that's kind of my viewpoint um and i'm, I'm sure you're probably more or less in the same ballpark as that aren't you oh absolutely and i think there's um I think there's a, a relationship between the two. It, it, again, we t- think of sort of polarization. So the positivist and interpretivist use two broad terms, and, mm-hmm. and we're going to we're going to put lots into that interpretive tent for now. But I think there's a relationship between the two because, for instance, if you were investigating the effect on um, employee behavior or employee redundancies and having women CEOs in multinational companies based in Europe, then to some extent, you can't really understand that phenomenon without the measuring, mm, yeah. without the understanding. Are those relationships there? How can we describe them? Are there any statistical uh, correlations that are important? So I think it's all valuable to do that. And then you can you, you know, you can do hypothesis testing. You have a theoretical model. I suppose is on the other side of that, you also have to ask where do the theoretical models come from? Yeah. And how, how do we generate those potential theories? And I think it's a, a fairly standard but not often discussed notion that a lot of, a lot of the more sort of uh, constructivist or interpretive research is, is there to help generate theoretical positions, to explore the unexplored, to undertake exploratory research and to think about actually, are our theories about why these correlations exist, are they robust enough? Are they, are, are, are we missing important elements of what's happening here? Or are there other groups or that are involved in the process, which in the moment we've we've overlooked because of the approach that we normally take? So I think there's a, there's actually a quite a, a nice relationship between the two. So we certainly don't want to jettison either. I think I think a Absolutely. world where there was only one paradigm would be problematic. It's a very thin world, that isn't it? Yeah, then, yeah, yeah. How, uh, I'm going to ask what you may find a, a, a slightly unusual question, but. How much do you think that um, tension or those those two kind of, you know, anchoring points that we talked about represent um, the um, the ancient Greek sort of ideas of episteme and techne, how uh, in that kind of sense of um, clear, identifiable, organized knowledge and the sort of more uh, stuff that's grounded in lived accounts and that sort of thing? Yeah, I, I, no, I, I think so. But I mean, there's... If you look at the sort of more positivistic theorizing, it is driven by the notion that we should have clear-cut transparency about the relations that we want to measure or explore or test. I I think we can understand why that is. There's a there's a. If you look at the natural sciences, you know, so physics, chemistry, and so on. 
even probably economics calls, falls into that category, you know, mm. models that we can use, I think, particularly to intervene in the world. I think a lot of post-positivist research is about getting yourself into a position where you think you can take your knowledge, pull the appropriate levers based on your understanding of the world mm -hmm. and make a change. Um, and obviously, if you're going to do that, you're hoping for clarity. And, and it gets murky, of course, particularly when you look at uh, changes in the political environments and, and the robustness of the model. On the other hand, that lived voice, um, the lived experience, the individual experience of all of that aggregated sets of patterns and trends and models that we think uh, describe the world, they're to some extent unique. And I think that's partly what causes the problem, isn't it? That people are wondering, if we give voice to what is a highly individualized highly contextualized position is that knowledge i think that's what some people worry about and is it knowledge yeah. enough is it enough knowledge so you may say well what difference does that make so what can i do with that knowledge you'll often hear that question being asked and so what what will you do to change the world and i think there's a there's a large array of answers to that one of which is the knowledge itself is changing the world the knowledge itself is giving voice to the fact that actually experience is much richer than our more attenuated logically clear well organized models would suggest and that we're missing aspects of reality which are equally important certainly to those who live them um, if not to policymakers necessarily mm. So there's that aspect, but it's also, it does, it comes down to this, what do we mean by knowledge? So if you go back to the Greeks and Plato, you know, justified true belief. So you think, okay, so justified because I have a basis for making the claim um, in evidence or in some other form. Uh, it's a belief because I have to form an opinion to make any knowledge claim. I have to have some basis or belief about the nature of reality. And then it being true. In other words, it captures or describes some type of reality. And I think if you look at it that way, then understanding lived experience or individuals or the way that they construct the world seems to count as knowledge. Mm -hmm. If you've got a justified true belief about, about that experience. Does that, does that take us down a, a sort of a, an abstract path or is it <laughs> a concrete one? Well, it's, it's, it's very interesting. I think, and, and uh, in my kind of classic uh, desire to say, oh, is this thing like something else or is it like something other different things? Uh, again, you know, episteme and techne uh, also makes me kind of think of, of the German philosophical views of of Verstehen and Erklären um, about whether we are promoting an understanding or whether we're kind of clarifying a reality in quotes almost I think um, and so yeah it's it's I mean human beings are are often want to um, you know plump lots of stuff together I think that's very much categorizing and organizing is a kind of fundamental part of our thought processes um, and I get I get personally quite frustrated in in and I'll go very slightly political here with a small p we we hear a lot from you know this government and what sometimes get called you know voices of business of so people at the cbi who i think we would accept speak for a certain tranche of business and a certain business perspective saying that um you know what we need is is more stem graduates so we need more graduates coming out in science technology engineering um maths as if what our economy needs is, you know, 50,000 more geologists and apologists to geologists. I'm just picking you as a random example there. You know, so this kind of trying to divide everything, you know, we, we see this time and time and time again, we divide everything into these kind of dichotomous variables. So the Victorians would talk about the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. And we see that narrative being replicated in, you know, views of, um, you know, 
good, in quotes, poor people and bad poor people. So we've got this kind of real, this, this similar tension, I think, exists in lots of these areas. And as a, as a, as a social science subject that really should be, I think, um, applied at its core, there's, I'm, I'm not sure of the value of purely theoretical business. Um, you know, it's only making theoretical notions unless those can are to then be applied. We, we, we end up, I think, boxing ourselves or the discipline has boxed itself a bit into a corner because we say, well, we need to be applied and it needs to be about making things better. Um, and you know, my my discipline, as you as you know, is is public administration, public management, and we struggle to have our voice heard within you know the realms of 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 business. In quotes, um, my previous organisation I worked for, the business school, termed itself the business school for business, and I I thought, well, you know good luck getting business to organize like roads and healthcare training and all other sorts of things that you that you use on a daily basis and you need you know society is made up of of more than just you know those economic units i think of function so we we we're this applied subject but then because lots of people and you know look at the two of us move into business and management from other fields um of course those people we all bring with us our own kind of disciplinary norms and views and perspectives and ways of doing things and i think the the move into business and kind of a lot of this early focus on um within business and management literature um about private sector um, engineering and manufacturing as like the basis in which a lot of business and management thinking kind of took place has driven us down this road of of if you can't measure it, if you can't measure how much cheaper that widget is or how much more quickly that change to that machine allows you to produce your widgets, then it's not really worthwhile. And I think we are part of what will be a multi multi decades of kind of pushback to say, actually, social justice, social impact, um, procedural justice, you know, they're all other sorts of um, notions of fairness, of equity, of wanting to, um, you know, have a fairer society redistribution of of you know wealth or privilege or benefits and things is something that is is still a little bit underrated in the reality of how we do business and management i think most people go no no that's all really important but when you look at where the money gets spent and, and within research and how we do it I'm not sure that necessarily tells the same story. Uh, that's on one of my other sort of vaguely ethereal rambles for the morning. I don't know what uh, what that leaves you in a, as a position, Steve. Well, you see, I, I think sometimes you, uh, you you raise the bar here in terms of actually listening to you. It made me think of, and I, I don't know why. Sometimes we don't know why do we make these connections. Mm. But there's uh, there's a novel, fairly famous novel. I won't mention the, the author because I don't want to. Uh, uh, suggest that anyone should read it but in one of the chapters um he, t he begins and there's an opening line it says we are not interested in the poor this was written in 1908 uh, the poor are only of interest to statisticians and the poets and i think to some extent that that reflects what you were just talking about we, we've tended to see when we're looking at those marginalized groups or or, or sets of individuals that, that have suffered injustices historical or present we either want to measure or we want to 
as you say, sort of take a more sort of poetical, ethereal mm, position mm. And, and, and sort of to talk about how, how we might represent them and how we might sympathize and feel sort of pathos for the individuals. But there's a position in between which isn't measuring and it isn't pathos, but it's actually engaging directly with, with those sets of individuals yeah. and giving them some sense of empowerment. Because I, I think, again, uh, how do we escape this? There's a sense where we want to explain what's happening, don't we? So we want to see a phenomenon and say, oh, I've got a very interesting theory. And I think when you look at people from outside of academia sometimes what frustrates them is that it seems that we're more concerned about the subtlety of our theory than whether or not the theory actually describes the phenomenon that we're looking at so and and, and those are not issues those are issues that have been discussed for thousands of years so you know we're not going to solve them overnight but you can see how that perception grows and i think you're right that there needs to be more of a focus, hopefully, and this isn't a epistemological issue, just reminding us where we are, Absolutely. on how do we get to know about injustice? How do we get to know? And one aspect of that surely is giving voice to those individuals who, who are experiencing the effects of our decisions as a society, yeah, as a wider yeah. whole. And I think I think it's a really, really excellent point, Steve. Largely, it's very difficult for, in a positivist, post-positivist sort of sense of, of, of post-positivist epistemologies, if, we, if I can even say such a thing, it's very difficult to get access to that voice because it is about measuring presence or existence or sometimes about saying, well, you know, market share is a proxy for you know whatever so we'll look at market capitalizations of organizations that are led by you know someone of color or someone who's gay or whatever it would be or you know a woman goodness you know um still talking about uh, uh, rightly so sorry i'm not i'm not pouring scorn on the notion but yeah we're still really battling with this idea about you know having enough women and um, other forms of diversity in in boardrooms and in executives uh, which i know is is one of your areas of kind of real interest um, so actually, if we do want to try and push this focus, and um, this is us, the big broad us now in terms of business management law, on listening to people's lived experiences, on on engaging with people in real world research, in quotes, then actually that carries with it a series of um, epistemological constraints or guidance or or pathways that we should follow. Does that does that seem right? It does. And I'm glad you used the phrase real world, though, because I think there's still a lingering sort of metaphorical position that we adopt. Real world tells to mean tends to make us think of, I don't know, hammering away at a coal face, doesn't it? It, it tends does, to, yeah, well, yeah. Was, was I think the important aspect of, of what you're saying is that real world is far, so more, more expansive than that, yeah, isn't it? it's enormous, sort of the, yeah. The, in terms of what can count as the real world. So, for instance, uh, sadly, I'm quite interested in textual anal- analysis. And people might say, that's not the real world. But at the same time, I think it has a really important role to play in the, in the, in the world. That's so- absolutely right. I'll just interject with another brief story. Um, when I was doing my um, when I was doing my PG cert uh, in learning and teaching in HE, so that's my, my teaching qualification in quotes for HE, we were thinking about technology. There was this Google document that we were all typing in to show that we could use technology. And the question was, you know, what's sorts of technology do you use in your teaching and so other people were going oh you know I, I use voting buttons or ipads or you know surveys and i started with well pens pencils post-its and somebody challenged me and said they're not technology and i said 
They don't grow on trees. I think you'll find they are technology. It's just a very basic form of technology. And I think, yeah, we, we can we can zoom our focus in very tightly sometimes on some of these things when actually what we need to do is take that much broader view of of how we access um that that quote real world like lived experience it is a hugely more complex thing than, than we allow yes and it's interesting to use that word, word technology again i, I know that uh, the german philosopher heidegger uh, wrote quite a lot on the idea of technology how and again it's about intervening and making a change in the world, almost put it quite philosophically. And, and I think we're allowed to, to, to mention that in this particular type of discussion, but it's about how you grasp the world, how are you taking hold of the world? And I think that's perhaps another metaphor or that people can think of in terms of epistemology. It's about how are you, and in fact, even going back to, sorry, you have to indulge me here, okay. but someone like but the German concept for, you know, a concept is begriff, the, the, the grabbing, you know, the grasping, taking hold of reality. And how you take hold of reality will depend on whether you use a hand or a tool or a laser or a microscope. So I think that, that that sense of how you change the tool with which you approach reality will, of course, heavily influence the type of knowledge that you can generate. Um, and I don't think it's, it's not a competition between knowledge types, is it? I don't, th- I don't think we're supporting sides no, one no. way or the other. I think, I think knowledge in itself, I think what we're looking for is knowledge that understands itself, isn't it? That understands its limits, understands mm. its field of expertise and its scope. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's odd, isn't it? Because I, I was just thinking, I know, I know we're not far away from the end of this mm. conversation. It's a conversation about epistemology and we haven't just listed out different Here are different approaches. epistemologies. epistemologies. I, it is. And I think something, again, you said, that, and, I, and I shall try to be more brief in my sort of vague meanderings, <laughs> uh, is... Is it is about how you engage with those tools and how you understand what those tools are and how you can kind of deploy them, which I think in a way for me explains why people want to leap immediately to, well, how am I going to gather and analyze my data? You know, I'm going to do interviews, I'm going to do focus groups, I'm going to do, you know, an audio ethnography, for example, whatever it would be, you know, I'm going to do survey stuff. And actually, uh, that's not wrong, but unless you're clear how you've got to the position of kind of picking the tools how do you know that it's going to be able to access the knowledge that you want to access and a little example again that's just kind of sprung to mind i listened to a radio 4 program and they were talking about the guy leading the team that essentially um discovered uh cot death or sid sudden infant death syndrome and They've been doing all sorts of, you know, post-mortems and medical research, you know, and those sorts of things. What actually helped really trigger their knowledge was 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 the lead researcher. And they'd actually got to the point they were asking parents, mainly mums, of their accounts of when they when they went in and they found their dead child, which sounds horrible, really harrowing. But the lead scientist realized that all of those accounts, almost all of them, started with something like, I knew my child was dead before I turned them over. Um, And it was that that kind of triggered the, oh, hang on a second, it's sleeping on the front is a significant risk factor. So, you know, even medical researchers, the tool that is being used, if they'd not done that capturing of those experiences, I don't know where, how quickly we'd have got to, you know, something that has made a big impact on in terms of, you know, infant mortality. And this is part of the, you know, all analysis of data is qualitative because no numbers mean anything in and of themselves. 
Yeah, that's one of my one of my favourite uh, sayings is, is that the d- data doesn't speak of itself, does it? it? It can only be brought to bear through the human human voice yeah. or in the widest sense, obviously through text, but um, through, through communication. And I think again, it's important to remember that because when people are making uh, choices about epistemology and they're thinking I'm a post-positivist and so on, there's a tendency to feel that you're debarred from almost and this is quite controversial, some degree of responsibility for the mm, outcome mm. Of, of your work. It's distancing. Because, yeah, yeah the, you know, that detached objectivity um, that that's sort of engineered into the way that type of research is presented. And I think that's also an interesting point for people to think about. It's not for us to dictate how we should mm. think about that. But I think it's an interesting area when you start to bring, again, ethical dimensions of epistemological questions and are, are you aware of the impact that your knowledge claims might have? And to what extent are you merely claiming yeah. that it's an objective claim yeah. and for the world to understand? Or is there a way to inform and interpret the outcome, mm. which is which is at least cognizant of the potential consequences? Yeah, yeah. So it is about that contextualizing or citing with an S, not a C, your research yeah. in a particular field and with a particular view to what is it you're trying to achieve um, that helps guide that kind of coherent uh, approach. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Right. Well, that sort of brings us to the end of our kind of meander through um, epistemology. Um, I don't know how helpful people have found that. I, I certainly found it a very interesting conversation. I suppose we'll uh, we'll we'll let you guys listening to it be the the judge of that whether it was helpful. Yeah. I think I think hopefully people uh, the, the value of these hope this is the way Russ and I feel. I think hmm. is the value is to to hear the conversation is yeah, the dialogue. Right. Um, textbooks will give you a list of different epistemological positions but how useful those 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 lists are mm. without the sort of the prior thought process about what are we actually trying to do mm. what's at stake here mm. um why does this matter yeah i think it's an, it's an important yeah okay. absolutely great well thank you very much steve as per usual um and thanks very much everyone you've been listening to research matters uh, i'm russ glennon and i've had with me today steve win okay goodbye thank you This has been Research Matters, where we bring high-quality research design to life in the business and management fields, with Russ Glennon, Steve Wynn and Stephen Busduggan.